Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Martin Polyakov. I'm a research professor in chemistry at the University of Nottingham. And I'm also foreign secretary and one of the vice presidents of the Royal Society of London. I, I was born in London. My father was Russian, born in Moscow. My mother was in English, born in London, and didn't speak a word of Russian. And I was brought up in a household where my Russian grandparents were living in a flat on the top floor of our house. Did you learn Russian eventually? I learned Russian when I or started learning Russian when I was 14 at school. And as soon as I started, I then went every night to see my grandmother and talk to her or try to talk to her in Russian for about an hour every night. So I speak even now rather old-fashioned Russian. Has Russian changed that much then? It has become much less formal. And since 1991, the language has filled up with English words I learned a nice word recently, tweetnut, which means to tweet on Twitter. So there are more and more foreign words going into Russian. Now, as I understand it, I mean, you're obviously a chemist, but looking at your family history, you seem to have bucked the trend quite a bit by being a chemist. And some people would say, let the side down, because there's a lot of physicists in your clan, aren't there? Yes, yes, my... Father, grandfather and son are physicists and both my parents-in-law and one of my wife's grandfathers were also physicists. But I wasn't good enough at maths. But I had a very good memory, so it was much easier to do chemistry. So how did you get into chemistry and what did you study? Where did you think it was going to take you? I started being passionate about chemistry at school I, it should be said that in my day, you didn't be, begin doing science at school till you were 14 or so. So um, I started studying chemistry just before my 14th birthday. And I then and now am very keen on buying books. And I bought a lot of second-hand chemistry books, often from the sort of late 19th century, and I read them all, so I had a, quite quickly quite an encyclopedic knowledge of chemistry, possibly rather out of date, but at least full of facts. I had quite an enlightened school, which in the days before health and safety was taken so seriously, allowed us a couple of hours a week to do whatever experiments we wanted with only modest supervision. I did all sorts of experiments which nowadays would horrify people. Go on then, horrify me. So, for example, I made borines by... Um, I didn't trap them, but magnesium boride and acidified it. My, as a schoolboy, my fingers were permanently yellow from burns from nitric acid. And 
I'm ashamed to say that I used to mop up the bench with my handkerchief and one day at the school service, church service, I pulled my handkerchief out of my pocket and the whole thing just dissolved into dust. You'd probably made nitrocellulose, hadn't you? It, quite possibly. But that obviously laid the ground for what you were to become. Did you did you at that stage think, well, I'm going to be an academic chemist, or was that a role that found you rather than you finding it? I think my father had decided when I was quite young that I would be an academic scientist, and so I wasn't given much choice. And how did you find yourself at Nottingham? Well, I'm unusual position that I have never in my life applied for a competitive job. As it says in the article, I did very badly in my finals at university, but um, my supervisor had faith in me and I was sponsored by my Cambridge College to do a PhD. And then in the second year of my PhD, my supervisor, Jim Turner, became professor in Newcastle. And so on finishing my PhD, I moved to Newcastle. And after seven years, he moved to Nottingham and I moved with him. And on both those moves, he managed to negotiate a post for me. And how did your interest in green chemistry come about? Because the first time I ever met you, it was at the British Science Association Festival. I think that was at the University of York. It would have been about 2007-ish. And you were standing there with a plastic bottle and, uh, and explaining how actually many of the solvents and things we use in the world around us to make the things in the world around us are extremely nasty, but we could replace them with carbon dioxide. And I was spellbound because I'd never thought of the concept of being able to use something relatively innocuous to replace things that definitely aren't. So how did you get into that? Well, the reason I got in was that I became fascinated in supercritical fluids, highly compressed carbon dioxide and other similar gases in the late 1980s. And then in the early 1990s, about 1993, the um, SERC, the forerunner of EPSRC, had a so-called clean technology unit was launched. And they were offering um, money for research involving cleaner ways of making chemicals. And through our interest in carbon dioxide, we were well placed to um, try some of this out. Once I started, I was completely hooked. And so now you, you've gone on, obviously, to develop this into quite a formidable research interest, haven't you? Well, now it's really my entire research interest. And I've also I'm, I've always been rather bad at making chemicals I'm in the lab, personally. And so... I have, from, for the last 20 years or so, been obsessed with trying to build machines to make chemicals. So you pump chemicals in, you pass them over a catalyst, and out comes a product. So our research group has developed a very strong interest in so-called continuous reactions, which are, of course, common on large-scale industry. They're less common in research labs, though in the last five years, 10 years, they have become more fashionable in research labs. Turning to your Russian roots for a second, have you found, as a chemist who speaks Russian, which must be pretty unusual in Britain, that this opens doors for you 
with Russia today? Yes, um, I should say straight away, it's not unusual now because there are lots of Russians working in the West. I have two Russian colleagues in Nottingham alone. But when I started interactions with Russia, which was in the mid-1980s, it was much more unusual to have Russian-speaking chemists working in the West. And I think the reason, at least to begin with, why this was very useful is because my Russian counterparts could speak English quite well when they were talking about lasers or their particular area of research, but they were totally lacking in the vocabulary to carry on the conversation over dinner or a glass of wine. Whereas I was the other way around. I couldn't say anything about chemistry in Russian, but I could chat socially indefinitely. So this was quite a good combination. But how did you also then spread your wings into another continent, Africa? Because you've also actually had quite a lot of success in some African countries, Ethiopia amongst them. Um, that, that was purely due to chance. My son, about two years after he um, graduated in physics, decided he was bored working in industry and that he would go as a volunteer physics teacher to rural Ethiopia. And a year after he went, I and my wife went to visit Ethiopia, go to visit Simon, and I gave an impromptu talk on green chemistry. And it was quite interesting that so many people wanted to listen that the, eventually the doors of the lecture theatre had to be locked. And it's the only time in my life that I've given a lecture with people outside looking in through the windows. Usually when I give a lecture, it's people inside looking out through the windows. The people at the school were very enthusiastic and said we should visit Addis Ababa University and talk to the chemist there. So we went to Addis University a few days later and um, we met um, a woman lecturer, Dr. Nigis Dasfor, who was coming down the stairs in a great hurry and Simon spoke to her in fluent Amharic, and she was so amazed that she forgot what she was doing and turned around and showed, her, showed us around the department. And she and her husband, who's a leading botanist, have become great friends of ours. In fact, her husband, Seb Sebi, has received an honorary degree from Nottingham in 2010, the only African apart from Nelson Mandela to ever get an honorary degree from our university. And do you now continue to work with them? Well, my um, younger colleague, Pete Lysons, became an adjunct professor in Addis University. One of his students, and now one of my postdocs, have worked as lecturers at Addis University. We're doing joint research with them. And I visit Ethiopia at least once a year at the moment, I'm scheduled to go again in November. Of course, probably the thing that the average person who has come across you has come across you on account of would be your YouTube presence. Tell us about how that happened and what effect it's had on you. Well, first of all, it's had an enormous effect. But it began because my university started a YouTube channel called TestTube, which was a collaboration between the university and a video journalist called Brady Harron, 
who at that time was working part-time for BBC East Midlands Today, the local news station. And after they'd been running for about a year, I heard about them and I got very enthusiastic. And so somewhat naturally, I was asked if I wanted to be videoed. And Brady came to see me in my office and at the end of quite a long day and videoed me for about two hours and made, I can't remember whether it was five or eight videos out of what we did. What did you tell him? What were you videoing on? Oh, I talked about green chemistry, supercritical fluids, a bit about me, my bad exam results, the fact that drunks shout hello Einstein at me late at night in the centre of Nottingham. and I mean, that would be on, on account of the fact you do have the world's most recognisable hairstyle. I um, also demonstrated a particular sort of dog toy called the Wiggly Giggly, which um, has the same shape as methane and I use for teaching the students. But the difference from between the Wiggly Giggly and methane is that if you rotate it, it squeaks. And... Um, in fact, the supplier of these Wiggly Gigglies got so excited by the YouTube video that he sent me a box of a dozen more. So I now have 13 Wiggly Gigglies in my office. But do you have a dog? I'd never, no, I don't have a dog. <laughs> um, and, um, but after all of this, Brady had the idea of making <clears throat> one video about each of the 118 elements on the periodic table and I told him he was mad because how could you talk about, say, element 117, which in those days not even one atom had been observed. And so he persuaded me that it was worth a try. And I found some money, but the money had to be spent in six weeks. So we had to make 120 videos in six weeks and... 120, 118 elements, but there was an introduction and a trailer. And I um, drafted in three of my colleagues to do, who were interested in doing experiments, and particularly um, Pete License, but also um, Steve Little, who was an expert on um, the transuranium elements and also the lanthanides, which was an area where I don't have enormous amount of knowledge. And because we were in such a rush, I had to make a very arrogant decision. There wasn't time to look anything up. So we just had to go for it and say whatever I could remember about the different elements. But all of this caused a lot of excitement. And after six weeks, we thought we'd finished. But the YouTube fans were asking us to keep going and make more videos. And surprisingly, six years on, they're still asking us to make more videos. So we keep going. And we had a video uploaded um, yesterday at about six or seven in the evening, which has already been watched by not a huge number of people, but something like 25,000, which is reasonable. I'd say that's an incredible achievement, Martin. Are, are they actually watching it for the science, or do you think it's something else as well do you think it's your unique personality because you do bring a very compelling style to the way that you expound and talk about things and you make them intrinsically very interesting so do you think it's it's a combination of the science and you thereafter 
Um, or do you think that these are just so interested in the science that that's what they're coming for? Well, I think I think that they watch because they are interested. They're interested in the science, and I think that what part of the success, of at least the part that I'm involved in, is the fact that I look like a typical scientist, and people expect me to be rather boring, and the fact that I'm quite funny is a very strange contrast. I mean, I, for example, I got an email yesterday saying, my name is Robin, I'm a 15-year-old boy, and I live in the Netherlands. Some persons call it Holland. Because of you and your team from periodic videos, I want to study chemistry. And, and we get quite a few messages like that. How do you see the rest of your career playing out? How do you want to finish things up? Where would you like to see it all finish? I'm now past the official retirement age, and I'm the first professor in my department who has passed the age of 65 under the new legislation, which means you do not need to retire. And so it's quite an experiment. But at the moment, I'm really enjoying what I'm doing, and I think our science is still going really well. So I don't have any immediate plans to retire. But on the other hand, one clearly can't go on forever. My mother had a cousin who gave his last keynote lecture at a conference when he was 98 and worked in the lab till he was 102 and wrote his last paper when he was 104. So he's quite an interesting inspiration. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.